Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Scott Seabright. So now for the second week, we're going to be going deep into the martial arts. Scott is an MMA coach in Milwaukee at Primal MKE. He's from the Duke Rufus lineage of MMA teaching, and is just a fascinating guy. I recently met him through Rob Gray's podcast, where we were talking about ecological ecological dynamics and MMA coaching. That's exactly what we're talking about in this podcast as well. I just wanted to go deeper in getting an insight into Scott's perspective, how he's been applying these principles in his training and how, um, and what his, his, his gym's training sessions actually look like. I've done some MMA coaching um, and tried to apply the ecological dynamics in it. Obviously we coach elements of martial arts in the Evolve Move Play classes and retreats, and we're applying these things, but I have a somewhat, you know, specific kind of uh, environment that I'm teaching in that's very different from what the average MMA gym looks like. So I wanted to be able to talk to somebody who'd really apply this on the day-to-day for years with a group of athletes. And it was fascinating to just hear how it's gone for Scott, what he's looking at, what is working for him and just how he's applying this perspective. So personally, I'm really excited to get a chance to go hang out with Scott at Primal MKE and, and see how this is all put to, uh, to work. Um, so hopefully that happens one day. And I think you guys, any of you guys who are interested in martial arts at all, are going to have a really fun time hearing us kind of, you know, dig deep into what it means to apply an ecological dynamics approach, understand motor learning and how that applies to changing the way that we structure MMA training so that people can get the most out of it in a minimum amount of time. So without further ado, join my conversation with Scott Seawright. Scott, welcome to the Evolve and Play podcast. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this chat. Yes, we met recently on a chat put together by Rob Gray of the Perception Action podcast, um, talking about ecological dynamics approaches to uh, mixed martial arts coaching. So it was me, yeah. you, Sean Mishka, and um, I can't remember the other speaker, Scott. Uh, that was me. It was uh, Josh Peacock. Josh Peacock. Josh yeah. Peacock. Yeah, cool. Yeah, my imposter syndrome was uh, kicking in hard that day. But uh, <laughs> we, I, I reached out to you or we, we spoke afterwards because everything you were saying, I, you know, I found myself just nodding and nodding and nodding with, with, with so much in common in the way we were thinking. So yeah, uh, maybe really. exploring that a bit further. Good. So I am, um, as you know, we spoke about the striking and the dilemma we have about uh, being representative training without the damage. I'm not sure we need to, I, I tend to talk about that in all my podcasts. I'm happy to do so. Um, but I'm really fascinated and increasingly more fascinated about 
how we apply this in a, the um, grappling and ground game setting. Mm -hmm. and, um, I know you're uh, interested in that too. So I'd love yeah. to talk, I mean, talk about that today. I'm a bit more of a striker myself. I like to strike. Um, so we'll, we'll have to, to touch base on that. But uh, but yeah, it was really encouraging for me just to meet you and and uh, to know that there are some people who are kind of more deeply embedded in the mixed martial arts community because that's kind of a community that I come in and out of because my primary work is these retreats and more based around parkour. So mm -hmm. it's nice to to be uh, putting out these ideas and see that they're resonating with people and they're actually people who are doing this on the day to day um, in the gym. So I'd love to start with just kind of how you. Uh, so, so you own a gym in, in Milwaukee, right? I own a gym with my partner in Milwaukee. Yes. Okay, cool. How long have you been, um, how long have you been in the industry? How long have you been training and kind of what are your base arts? I got a little bit of a, a late start when I revisited martial arts. I did a bit of karate when I was younger, but there's no history of starting it when I was four for me. You know, I yeah. actually, when I moved to the States around 27, 28, uh, looking for, you know, to create kind of community and make friends. I walked into uh, Duke Rufus, which is now Rufus Sport uh, yeah. gym, highly successful gym and fell in love with it. Started off doing some boxing, a bit of uh, amateur boxing, golden gloves, uh, kickboxing too. And then as the whole gym kind of progressed towards MMA, I uh, fell myself into that and, and uh, grappling. But by that time, when I was doing my amateur uh, fights and whatnot, I was like 31, 32. I had a lot of young up-and-comers. Uh, I'll try not to name drop, name drop, but one of my um, sparring partners and main training partners back then was Anthony Pettis. And I, I had no idea how good he would become. Uh, but it was, I guess, I had a little bit of critical thinking even back then because I think this kid's 10 years younger, 10 times better, and uh, <laughs> I was realistic with my goals. So I moved into coaching pretty quickly, in fact, yeah. far too quickly. Uh, that was a natural step, you know, to continue the love of the sport. And um, again, I already mentioned it, the imposter syndrome. I really didn't know what I was doing, so uh, that set me on this kind of, it was a catalyst for change for me and for learning. Uh, I went back to school to do my degree in um, coaching and athletic development. And sometime during my studies, I came across a video by Trevor Reagan speaking about block versus random practice. Lo and behold, one rabbit hole became a whole warren. Here I find myself now talking to guys like yourself and yeah. Yeah. guys in space. So that was uh, kind of drawn yeah. out, but that's my intro. Okay, cool. So block versus random practice, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, a block practice is essentially one where you're, say, you know, a really easy way to look at it is like a strength conditioning uh, syndrome, right? You're just going to do you know, five sets of bench press, five sets of squats, five sets of deadlifts, and you do them in a row. Um, in a sport context, that might be something like, you know, we're going to do, you know, uh, 30 go routes uh, in football and then 30 square outs and squ 30 square ends. Martial arts context, like actually most recent class that I went to, we basically did jabs, crosses, hooks, you know, jab, cross, hook, right? And it's just chagrin, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, it was not uh, as representative or as um, information dense as I would have liked. But, uh, but yeah, that'd be a, kind of an example of a, of a block practice. And then random practice would be something where we're, where we're mixing in a lot more elements um, throughout the practice. So parkour, I think, is actually a really good example of, you know, most of the training is, is random practice. You, you're kind of out and you discover a challenge that whatever's interesting and you just kind of go with what's intrinsically motivating at a given time there's definitely some structure but that's sort of the default uh practice style so tell me a little bit about how you've utilized that in uh in 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 the gym like what, what came up for you when you discovered that idea and and how have you utilized it 
Well, you know, it, it was a real aha moment for me, and it resonated right away. I felt myself, um, including my teammates, my um, fellow, you know, my students at the time, and uh, doing a lot of stuff in the gym that wasn't showing up in either sparring or especially competition. And so it made a it made a great deal of sense to me. And as soon as I just even started playing around with it and adding a little bit more variability, then I started to see the the um, the benefit of it. And I never really looked back, Riff. You know, and it really set a thirst for for just finding out more and more about this. But it's it, and it's, again, the third time I've mentioned the imposter syndrome, I'm I'm getting to know it now. Um, I'm getting a better grip and understanding of the science behind it. But man, it's a lot. It <laughs> really is a lot to to get in and all the different interpretations of it and stuff. So. Yeah, I had the same sense. I um, uh, so I just taught a, a, a workshop this weekend, and I had um, uh, one of the. Uh, I had one of the coaches who works with emergence there. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was fun. I got to chat with him a little bit. And I, I was telling him that, you know, when I got invited to to speak with Rob um, and Sean, it was like, well, a large section of what I know about ecological dynamics, I, listen, I know because of Rob's podcast. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and my, my MMA coaching experience is, retreats where it's mixed with a lot of other things. And, you know, a sum total of seven classes that I taught through the gym that I'm where uh, was wow. working here in Bellingham. So I definitely, you know, had that same sense of like, okay, but I just, you know, I, I know I have a good gift for, for communicating these ideas and, and it feels like there's, it's not necessarily out there right now there, you know, I've been in these spaces a lot where it's like, you kind of have to speak because you're the only person who can't speak, not because you're as prepared as you'd like to be. Right. Right. And, and first of all, I must apologize. I already apologize to you. I kind of shoehorned my way onto that. Uh, yeah. show, so it took, <laughs> up some, took up some of your uh, talking time. So uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great for me. It was really, uh, like I said, it was encouraging just to know that there's, there's somewhere that, uh, that, that that's happening on the daily. Like I'd love to come out to Milwaukee and, and, uh, and just kind of, experience what it's like to be to be training somewhere that has kind of this uh, ecological dynamics approach to to martial arts so so when was it that you discovered the idea of block versus random practice how long ago was that oh i think so i was training at another gym uh, so it was at least five years ago between five and seven i guess okay. and i was starting to slowly increment these things um into the gym and then it just i, I became so um I kind of drifted apart from the, the, the coach that I was working with at the time. We just didn't have a, our, our visions weren't aligned to how, how we wanted to do things. And so that was it. I thought I can, I can sit and complain all day or whatever. Or I can, you know, put my money where my mouth is and, and try it myself. And so it was a, somewhat of an experiment. Uh, we started from scratch, uh, mostly new students. And I second guessed it for a long time. I've, I've, I've played around, I've tweaked, I've, I've, I've um, you know, try and follow where the evidence leads me. But now into our second year, I'm really starting to see results. Now, granted, they're still in the gym generally. They're not quite, these kids aren't quite ready to go out there uh, and compete at higher levels, but um, I'm really seeing the, the development come rapidly. And not only that, and I, just so I don't forget, I think one of the most beautiful things I've found is that you create a certain kind of culture and attitude throughout the students, mm -hmm. and they're just not interested in the old way. Yeah. Uh, one, of the more, one of the biggest challenges is when perhaps someone's come from a more traditional and I, I feel like we, we batter traditional over the head a lot. Um, it certainly works. But um, when students perhaps come from other gyms, it's, it's, a, it's a tougher sell. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You got to, yeah, this is science progresses one funeral at a time, right? Sometimes you have to start with people who don't have as much uh, cup to empty, um, you mm -hmm. know, to use the old uh, 
think it's a Bruce Lee analogy or maybe it's an older Chinese analogy, right? But you, you enter a new gym and you got to empty your cup and, and be ready to fill it with, with new information. And uh, that's harder the more stuff that you've uh, accumulated, right? Right. And, and I, I really feel that this has been a great time to get into the space. I've certainly not reinvented the wheel. As I say, I, I'm following guys like yourself, like Rob, like Sean over at Emergence. But then uh, I listened to Coach Matt Thornton on your podcast. He's been talking yeah. about the same stuff for, for over two decades. Yeah. So yeah. we're I'm certainly not a pioneer in any way, but I feel I'm just starting to catch his wave as it's starting to build. And I'm, I'm happy to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, in that conversation with Matt, it's a, you know, I see something emergent in MMA where it, it it's naturally lends itself towards a sort of constraint led mm-hmm. approach, but there hasn't necessarily been the, um, the full sort of, uh, understanding of the theory, right. And having a theory that actually is, is guiding. And I mean, Matt's theory of aliveness is very, very closely aligned. Um, but having that kind of, um, knowing where the science is and the theory also is and being able to, to bring those together, I think, um, provides us a potential for a, another layer of insight. Right. And I think as coaches, we need to be somewhat of a, you know, reductionist sometimes and make, simplify things for, for our students. And I am, I'm wholly aware of the, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'm not yeah. sure where I am on that, on that uh, arc right now. Uh, I think I was probably right at the peak there for a while, but again, <laughs> it, it's coming around. Things are starting to fall into place. And I, I, I guess my only concern is, especially on my podcast, I don't really speak to other coaches. I'm generally speaking to people who are already bought into this ecological uh, constraint-led approach. And I do, I do just remind myself sometimes to be careful not to get into an echo chamber, you know. I do want to hear the other side of things. But at the moment, I, I really haven't come across anyone who can really articulate why the traditional approach appears to be better other than they already have the, the, the buy-in and it's a, a relatively straightforward linear process. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the simple, the simple defense is that's, you know, you point to a champion like Anthony Pettis and say, okay, well, this is how he trained, right? Success leaves clues. So um, shouldn't we train the same way? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's always theory behind it. You know, you're just having a discussion within my, my academy about the role of Kata, right? And they're saying, you know, Kata is really important. It, it's like, you are trying to analogize it to sort of learning the grammar and syntax of a language rather than just being able to speak it. Um, and I, I just don't really agree. <laughs> I, I think that, that it's, uh, it's one method for, for sort of maintaining a syllabus, right? But it's not necessarily the best method. It just, that might've been its function. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the thing that you need to, uh, to achieve that function. Correct. And it's, it's, let's be honest, especially in today's age, it's, it's highly marketable. Um, yeah. No one's out there able to sell a DVD or a course that, hey, the game is going to teach you the game, just make it scalable. That's like, <laughs> you could, you, I mean, there's a huge amount of, um, I'm sure yourself, reading and research and work that, that we do as coaches to try and understand this better. But at the same time, it could be written on the back of a napkin, you know, mm-hmm. be representative, uh, you know, scale, scale information and just train in reality. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, a lot of, of subtlety to that, you know, like knowing how to capture representativeness mm-hmm. and knowing how to target it at a specific adaptation that you're seeking within an athlete. Uh, that's, that's actually a, a very deep art. You know, it's not, you know, you can, you can say, just play the game. Um, yeah. 
but you can't just play the game. Right. And, I, and I, I'm acutely aware of that. And I'm not just saying that. And it, again, that's um, I'm a little further ahead just because of my interest in some of my fellow coaches and my partner. And they tend to do a lot of situational stuff. And I say, OK, it's not quite where we want to go. It's not it, it's not wholly representative of the, the ecological and constraints approach, but it, it's it's getting along there, you know. We're, especially in grappling, we'll break the uh, game down into games, so to speak, into these small situations and work from there. So I, I completely agree. It's a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more detailed, a lot more subtle. But this is a way of bringing my people, and, and yeah. including myself, along sometimes. And when you're teaching a class of 15, 20 people and you don't have time perhaps to, to constrain one particular athlete to find a behavior that, that you're trying to tease out for them, then sometimes just that kind of these small, I mean, to use an analogy from soccer, whatever, these kind of small-sided games or these small um, uh, scenarios, are, are, I think are still pretty useful. Oh, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's that's what our stuff is built off of in a lot of ways. Is like, how do we how do we provide scaling that is appropriate to different levels of an athlete's journey um, that allows them to pick up information that's relevant to the task we're training them for, um, while maintaining safety, which is, of course, the big so tell me a little bit about uh like how you're doing that what does uh, a class look like at primal so um you asked me at a time where we're, we're kind of switching over uh we're, we're stepping away we need to compartmentalize or or um you know separate the discipline so ordinarily you'd have like maybe kickboxing with uh, 69 gloves and shin pads and then you would have maybe a bit wrestling or grappling and then then just straight jiu-jitsu we're trying to come at it now from a more holistic perspective and just make it as much MMA as possible. So how would our beginners class and novices, and again, we are starting off, we're a pretty new gym. Uh, we try and get relatively authentic right away without headshots. I know that's kind of a oxymoron. How can it be authentic without headshots? But um, I make a lot of trade-offs the way we, we, we uh, train. Uh, but if I had to put it in a nutshell, we we might start off with uh, very very simply constrained little task games. But and I feel I'm, I'm I'm rambling a bit here, trying to be concise here, Rafe. But um, an example would have been the shoulder tag game to start with, which I think is just a wonderful way to develop footwork and reactions. And uh, when they're not thinking about, we spoke about this in the last podcast. When they uh, when they're not thinking about the feet, they're just intuitively moving back and forward correctly. I always feel the body, like, it, like I assume in parkour as well, I always want to be balanced, I always want to be upright, I always want to be safe. So watching the footwork emerge from there without giving them explicit instructions to don't cross your feet or don't bring your feet together, it's just wonderful how that would be a, a, an emergent quality. Going into our more uh, intermediate and advanced classes, uh, we would typically, we, just to give you an example of a couple of things we do, um, we might say an analogy we might use, okay, we're going to have a little bit open place bar here, um, one thing, if we want to encourage, say, combinations, we might say, let's let's look at the body at three different zones. You've got an upper zone, a middle zone, and a, a lower zone. Let's see if we can string some things together and level change. So it automatically brings out, you know, changing levels, going up to the head, down to the feet, and or sorry, down to the lower body, and then maybe to the body, the, the the core in the end. So that's encouraging. Be our way of uh, teasing out multiple shots and combinations. That makes sense. So we're always playing around in that space. Perhaps we'll do uh, uh, an exchange. I, I'm hesitant to use the word drills. I always call them exchanges now, where perhaps we say, okay, we're going to open place bar, but imagine imagine there's some judges here that they're high, the highly high value target might be the front leg. Yeah. So everything else is just noise. And then you're looking to presumably set that up, defend it, counter it, attack it kind of thing. So seeing some little subtle behaviors emerge. What I've gone away from here is trying to overload them with instructions because I think that's almost counterproductive. 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's plenty of opportunities. Yeah, excellent. So um, I think there's something interesting. So much of the work that I've done has been with novices to MMA, right? I'm not working with with guys who have highly refined skill sets. And so the games that that I've played, I think they're representative enough to gain like a first approximation. And then I'm curious as we as we advance, then the the way that you constrain the game in order to get the the target becomes a lot more um, has to be a lot more refined and more representative, really. So the game you talked about, the the shoulder tag game, we play a, a very similar game called torso tag. So the target is you know basically everything on the torso, just not below the waist and above the neck, right? And we find that, that everyone essentially will adopt some kind of bladed martial arts looking stance in this game. So we don't have to teach people, you know, why you adopt, or we don't have to teach people to stand in stance, right? Traditional kata and perfect their stance, which is very awkward in the beginning to teach somebody. And um, also people get really dogmatic about stance when they're taught that way. It becomes, it's not an adaptive thing. It's a, um, there's a correct way thing, right? And that, like I think an is, aesthetics to, yeah. please, to please the coach. Aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's very um, um, non-adaptive, right? It's, it's not what you want in producing an athlete who can really solve problems. So we played this torso tag game and they're going to start to do that. They're going to start to figure out shuffling footwork and, you know, sliding footwork and all those things. And obviously they're going to be figuring out fainting and, hand fighting and, you know, trying to clear lines of attack, but we don't, for instance, have takedowns in that game. And so there's not going to, uh, they're going to adapt a different stance potentially than a stance that's going to be defensive against takedowns. And also, um, I think your stance is going to be, they're going to have less obviously defense of the head, which is going to change things. I was watching a video where we're talking about, uh, the advantages of like Muay Thai stance versus a, um, a, uh, uh, an MMA stance and some of the other stuff. It's uh, Jeff Chan, MMA shredded. I quite like his stuff. Sure. I, 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 Jeff's actually been on, on my show. I think he's a, I always push people there. If there's someone who, and it was interesting because Jeff's not into the science of this at all. Yeah, just, yeah. He, he just intuitively, intuitively does it. He was explaining, he just pretty much records all his sparring. He yep. spars a lot. He spars yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. Sorry, on your go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's great. So check out Jeff Chan for sure. But, um, but I was thinking as we, as we progress, like one thing that's been interesting to me is that most of the best striking in MMA drives from Muay Thai, but virtually nobody in MMA fights from Muay Thai stance. Sure. You just can't. You can't because it's all, all the weights on that back foot and you're just asking it to be. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's far too vulnerable to a takedown. So you can look at someone like Darren Till or someone like Anderson Silva and see that they're they're using this the structure of Muay Thai striking, mm-hmm. um, but then they they're adopting this longer stance that often looks like in some ways a karate stance, right? Sure. So it's like okay, cool. So we have to we have to introduce things that shape that stance, right? And then we want to create an athlete who has adaptability to a different type of opponent, right? Yeah. So if if I'm I don't necessarily want to have one stance, right? This is kind of like the Bruce Lee idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like my style is in response to your style. Or, um, that's the, so if I, if I'm going against, you know, the classic boxer wrestler combo, the rampage Jackson, then I don't necessarily need to take a stance. That's really defensive against a heavy leg kick. 
But if I'm going against Jeff Chan, <laughs> then all of a sudden I have to, he's, he's got great takedowns. He's got great double yeah. leg and he's really good at ending his combos with, uh, with, with leg kicks. Yeah. So now it's a really different sort of, uh, sort of set of parameters. So if you're, if you're, if you have a coach who's going to fight Jeff and you're like, okay, how do I, um, set up the scenario that feeds you the information. So you're constantly solving that problem, right? Mm-hmm. For, for a beginner torso tag, shoulder tag, they're going to get the basic blading of the stance, but the subtleties of how much the foot is turned in, how much weight is forward or back based on if you're trying to throw heavy punches versus what you have to defend for. That's where I think, you know, it gets to be much more specific how we're developing representativeness. So I'm curious to hear you talk about that. Well, that's interesting. You said that. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, so, because I see that as a problem, right? Um, people may be leaning back, how they get away with it in boxing. If we do traditional yeah. boxing, they're opening the leg to the leg kick. Like you said, Muay Thai stance, generally more vulnerable to takedowns, whatnot. So again, I'm trying to get away from this uh, splitting the sport up. I think a good example as well of an equipment constraint is when we're trying to, you know, we have to, again, it's all constant trade-offs here. I, I do, I'm concerned about eye pokes, but we're trying to uh, gravitate towards small gloves because that completely changes the way one would defend. Yeah. And uh, so it's a work in progress right now, but we've actually taken away some of our striking classes and put it just into MMA. Now, so we have two yeah. MMA programs. We have a non-head contact MMA and uh, a, a regular MMA. And I think it really excites me about MMA because I can get a lot of the representativeness with without the head trauma. Mm-hmm. I spoke last time on the podcast about I I I grant you know if you're to push back at me, um, I, I they're very valid pushbacks. I don't get the I don't get the authentic level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. I don't get the authentic uh, level of perturbations and the speed and power and forces probably aren't there. Yeah. And but again, I've I've I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm at ease with that just now at the stage of where my team is and where we are in our development. Should we come? We actually have one pro fighter who came with me from another gym. He's 5-0 and oh, and he, he has a different cost-benefit analysis now. Okay? Yeah. So that's all different. But for where the stage we are just now, I'm happy to make these trade-offs. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in those because, I mean, again, like my context, um, there's, there's not a good reason for me to put someone in a situation where they have potential for head trauma. Because people aren't coming me, to me to become high-level martial artists at this stage, right? right? They're coming to become generally adaptive movement problem solvers, right? So, so I haven't had a chance to go deep on this, but in my own training, I have a sense that it's it's very clear that uh, my friend Rory Miller. Have you seen my interviews with Rory Miller? I have not yet. Yeah, I'll, check, I'll check it out now. But I haven't. yeah, yeah. His, also his book, Meditations on Violence, is fantastic. Um, and you know, he talks about the idea that that all all games that we play in in martial arts are are bounded by safety flaws. So those safety flaws, in order to make the game safe enough to play, we have to constrain it in such a way that it's non-representative. Even averaging bite and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, MMA is non-representative of a street fight in certain ways. It's much more representative than most reality-based self-defense that doesn't have aliveness at all. Sure. But, um, you know, the ground being soft is a huge change, right? And sure. it changes your behavior tremendously. Sure. I'd, uh, like I was watching Jeff and he was talking about, like, I wouldn't use a double leg in the street because I don't want to put my knee down on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
something you know people don't think about. Um, so, so, so if you're if you're training for MMA, that is a game that's still too dangerous to play with full intensity in the gym. So you have to have some sort of safety flaw. Yeah. So the, the, the key for me is uh, what I've been thinking about for years is how do I play enough diversity of games that the safety flaws of one game are kind of solved by another game. And, um, and so the athlete doesn't fall in love with the idea that a fight looks like what they're experiencing in a single game, which I think a lot of, uh, I get the sense that a lot of people do, right? Mm-hmm. They start to think, okay, well, I know how to fight because I know how to fight within this context. Sure. And, and it's, I think it's very easy also when you do a lot of high intensity sparring to mistake that for, for what fighting will feel like, because it feels yeah. enough like a fight that it's almost misleading. I think it's very much so misleading. And I, I don't think we even need to talk about a fully, a full MMA fight. You know, yeah. we run um, pancreation events. We've just started running in the gym and it's an opportunity for young aspiring fighters to come in and, and make the cage walk, fight in front of their uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever, and uh, get that level of arousal and anxiety up. And it's, it's, it's very different. And they all say it. just the anxiety alone is, is completely, you know, unfamiliar to them. And then the, the intensity, even in a grappling competition, and I can't prepare them enough for it. I said, this isn't like the gym. Yeah. When this person grabs a hold of you, you're going to feel something you haven't felt before, but it's okay. It's okay. Just, you know, just expect it and, and, and deal with it as it comes. But so I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Rafe. Um, it's a, uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. So, well, I'm just curious actually, because this is, this is the, the way that I think about these things, but I'm curious, do you, do you have a self-defense component to the way you think about these things? Or are you really just oriented towards MMA as a sport? Purely as a sport, I have to have to say, you know, yeah. um, we, weapons, all that kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm just not particularly interested in it. It's mm-hmm. not something we're selling. And, and we're very, very um, specific on what we do at our gym. You know, we're not a, we're not a cardio kickboxing. Um, yeah. It's just not what we do now. <laughs> Time history will tell whether there's enough people who want to do what we want, what we do. <laughs> we'll keep the lights on. Yeah. So far, it seems. So far, it seems to be. Um. You know, the the, the future looks bright, but um, we're very specific what we do. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, because I, I have always had a self defense orientation, so there's always been this this balance there where, like, you know, uh, we do a lot of our training without gloves at all. Okay. Which is actually interesting because. I think the gloves are part of the reason why eye pokes are happening. I don't know how many, <laughs> I think some eye pokes are unintentionally intentional. Um, but I think there's a lot of eye pokes that are caused by the inability to flex the wrist, right? Mm-hmm. So when you have all this uh, foam on top of the wrist, when you try to take the wrist back, you yeah. can't take the wrist back as much, which means that the fingers are more exposed, right? Sure. And in fights too, with the, with the hand wraps, you know, yeah. when the, the, yeah. their hands are taped, it, it is very, it's very, you know, sturdy. Yeah. So if you spar bare knuckled, um, so I, I teach and train with both open palm strikes and fist strikes. And um, when I strike it, if someone has their head down like this, I'm not going to throw my fist at their head. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be an open palm strike. But if you know, I get them leaning back here, then I'm happy to target their chin with a with a fist, right? And obviously, I'll target the body with a fist. But um, you know, if you're used to throwing palm strikes, it's easy to push someone away, which is a lot of times what people are trying to do in MMA is they're trying to post right and create a, a long guard defense, and that's when that the finger goes in. So if you're if you're able to create that more. Um, more flexed wrist you're actually able to more safely train that way without the eye pokes 
And uh, yeah, I, just, uh, I was thinking about that and I was listening to your conversation about, you know, changing to the, the MMA gloves rather than the, the, uh, the traditional boxing gloves for your striking training. And I was thinking about like, yeah, what about going all the way to, to bare knuckle as a way to, you kind of, I've, I've, uh, I was taught by a friend of mine that a lot of this Thai light sparring is done without shin guards. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a good incentive system, right? How hard can you spar without bruising your shin badly enough that you're going to have trouble walking the rest of the day? Right. And I, I was going to bring up shin guards because generally speaking, we we spar with shin guards on, and you you know yeah. kids are throwing these kicks with a reckless abandon, and yeah, it's soon we 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 do that sometimes. So I I generally don't take the gloves off, uh, but we'll 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 frequently take the shin guards off and watch how the behavior changes then. Yeah. No, and yeah. and it's not and not generally out of a concern for the partner. It's out of a concern for their own shins. Yeah, and it's the same thing with your hands, right? Right. Once you once you s- stick a knuckle on someone's forehead a couple of times, um, you uh, you become more circumspect in which strikes you're willing to throw. There's an interesting uh, concept. I'm sure you've heard of it, of the uh, uh, risk compensation theory. Yeah, uh, which which tends to be you know, and it, it shows up in all kinds of sports, but especially our ones. Now we don't use headgear. Um, one of my papers in college, the last one was, I found the 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 data and research on whether headgear actually helps with 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 concussions is kind of you know it's it, it's yeah. equivocal. It, you can go both ways on it, but I think one of the the things I see when you have headgear on is people tend to get hit more and they tend to hit harder. Yep. So again, that's a great example for me of an, of a, an equipment constraint. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of sparring. So we're pretty much primarily a sparring gym now. Um, mm-hmm. And we, again, that's why I'm so excited about MMA. We can really give the head a rest, uh, practice on wrestling against the wall, takedowns, all that stuff. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity to give the head a rest and really bring up the intensity. Um, but yeah, we found um, that, that we will avoid headgear and, and avoid ways to make the guys and girls uh, think they can just you know hit hard or they're safe i want mm-hmm. them to respect the shots and that's that's where the balance comes in do we respect them if they're not hard enough yeah yeah that's where you know i found that going all the way to bare knuckle that's going to create the most respect for the shots both sure. uh receiving and giving them mm-hmm. right like you're it freaking hurts um when you land a hard punch on somebody's forehead um it's not a pleasant experience um <laughs> Right, and, yeah. and that's and that's even with a glove sometimes. And, oh, and yeah. this, this is this is a good opportunity to plug um, a, a local company here, Combat Corner. They they've done a tremendous job. They've come up with a training glove that really curves your fingers over, and yeah. that's pretty much what the, the guys are wearing. The UFC gloves and that they're 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 pretty flat, and they all yeah. fight with brand new gloves. And these fingers are so I'm not surprised there's so much yeah. trouble. The fact that uh, UFC haven't gone away from that and and had a better glove is beyond me. Yeah, it's absurd. Given what happened to Michael Bisping and other fighters, like right. they 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 need to change the gloves. It's really important that the gloves are changed. They should change the gloves, or they should get rid of the gloves. Um, well, that too. Although uh, bare knuckle boxing is having kind of a, they're having a bad PR week. If you don't, if you I heard about that. Them. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think that's because it was bare knuckle. You know, I think no, I, I don't believe so either. But that'll be the that'll be the. Um, the thought or the insinuation. Yeah, now. yeah, it's, it's it's too bad. I actually believe that um, the most recent study that was done showed that people were able to produce the most force with MMA gloves. Um, oh, with MMA. MMA gloves yeah. were were superior to bare knuckle or a boxing glove in the amount of uh, force that you're able to transmit. 
It's just kind of enough safety to allow you to throw with reckless abandon while allowing more penetrative power than a, uh, a glove. I, I'm not sure about this. this is totally kind of speculative on my part, but I tend to think that boxing does limit your power to, to create a, um, uh, a lights out moment like the boxing glove. It actually does limit your ability to produce the knockout, but you're, you're absorbing a lot more micro trauma in right. exchange. Right? Right. You're, you're diffusing the amount of force, right? It's like, it's like the difference between uh, a knife and a hammer, right? Um, like given the same amount of force, a knife is going to hurt, is going to lacerate you and cut you. And a hammer is not right. But uh, but the, you know, the, the, the just sort of general pressure on the head, smacking it around yeah. sub sub concussively. I think that's a, a big part of the uh, punch drunkenness that, that's happening. I think it is. And it's a genuine concern for me. Um, I have to be honest, I, I, I can have long stretches of willful ignorance when it comes to the when it comes to that kind of research. Um, because whenever I do, um, again, back to I pulled my head out of my ass for a few months and wrote a paper on it when it, with regards to um, cumulative trauma and yeah. head, headgear and CTE. None of it's none of it's good reading. I yeah. actually follow a guy called um, Gary Turner. I don't know if you've you've maybe come across him on podcast. He was a multi-time world K1 and kickboxing champion who's now lives in England. He's an English guy and he's doing his PhD on CTE. So he's an advocate for cleaning up the sport. Um, the, the brief interaction we had, I was commenting one day about, you know, surely there's a spectrum between a feather duster and a two by four. And we tried to stay more towards the end of the feather duster. And he chimed in and said, you'd be surprised how close it is to the feather duster. Yeah. Now, this is the dilemma and the, the constant battle I have with myself. Um, is, there, is there a way to do it safely? And I, I think probably there is not. There's just degrees of, of risk and danger, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting for me. I mean, I've been, I guess, exchanging punches in the head with people since I was 15. And I've never been concussed, right? Um, well, I say I've never been, I've never had, uh, I've either had no concussions or thousands <laughs> because I haven't had the, I haven't had the typical symptoms. Yeah. You know, the grogginess or whatever. And uh, I've seen this. And they say if you see a little flash or a spark, it's probably a sign of some kind of concussive force. But um I've never had the classic symptoms, but yeah, who knows? I've taken a few, uh, as as fairly obvious, <laughs> quite a few whacks to the head. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's just interesting for me. I, I have friends now who, um, who who can't they can't spar at all. Like if you do this, they're gonna have a headache for a couple days. Yikes. Right? Or I had another friend who recently walked into a door, knocked himself completely out because he had just just damaged his brain enough that, you know, just that level of impact had, uh, would, would, would impact him. But it's curious to me, like, you know, uh, I also grew up in a family where, you know, almost like my dad was an all-state football player, all-state wrestler. Uh, as far as I know, he never got concussed. Everyone, everyone that saw on all of his mom's family, were all football players. So I don't know, maybe we just have better genetics for dealing with it. I think there's clearly a genetic component and to say otherwise is, is, is just disingenuous. I mean, we see boxers and fighters and whatnot who, who are fucked up after, excuse my French, after uh, you know, yeah. several years and other fighters. Uh, I tend to go down these rabbit holes and research all the old fighters and yeah. they were fighting back then. 
Oh, yeah. Like three, four hundred bouts and whatnot. And like my, one of my favorite examples is uh, Max Schmeling. Mm-hmm. Who was apparently running up, up and down pyramids in Mexico at, the, at ninety years old and <laughs> relatively sharp, and he he'd taken tremendous, he'd been in tremendous wars, sixty, seventy years prior. Yeah. Uh, so definitely a genetic component, and who knows? I feel like there's there's a lot of mystery to it, and mm-hmm. I I wonder about. Um, I have a sense that that people are just really unhealthy in general. In the modern world and the general inflammatory problems that we're having of right. food and environment maybe predisposing people to not being able to recover from from these injuries but you know there's definitely boxers from from quite a long time ago who are clearly clearly damaged sure. uh, with cte and i think it, i'm sure it manifests differently for everyone you know yeah. I, I see there's a there's quite a lot of canaries in the coal mine so to speak of the last generation boxers come through i mean i was yeah. just watching um uh, yesterday, uh, uh, Sugar Ray, uh, Duran, Herms, mm-hmm. they seem to be relatively well spoken and well to do. I think yeah. Herms has got a little bit of uh, some issues, but Sugar Ray, he looks great. Yeah, <laughs> he great. And again, thirty yeah. years ago, he was he was in some wars. He was a good defensive boxer, though, right? Like, right, but presumably yeah. he's still getting smacked around. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. But I definitely think that the guys who loved wars or who've survived on wars. Uh, that you you see it more in them as a general front. It's like there's a yeah, reason he so. doesn't seem very damaged, right? Because if you look mm-hmm. back on his fights, how many times did he ever get an exchange where he took multiple hard shots? Right, two fights maybe. And and I think now you know it, it, it is a different sport. They are training. If you look at now the average, um, well, I'm going to say well, the two things going on here. I think fighters have less fights. I think perhaps their careers are even longer now. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to tease out what's going on there. You know, if we assume that a lot of this micro trauma and damage is probably coming from training and yeah. not, not necessarily indicative of, of how many fights you've had, then I don't know. It's, it's kind of muddy waters there to tease out what's actually going on. Yeah, that's definitely something I've heard a lot of people talk about is the idea that it's the, it's the sparring wars in the gym that are really doing the cumulative damage, right? Um, unless you're like a Thai guy who's had 300 plus fights by the time you're 15. Um, generally, the, the amount of exposure time in the, in the ring is or the, or the cage is just vastly lower than the amount of exposure time in the gym. Uh, and so it's probably in the gym that we need to be to looking at how we can adjust, adjust training. And I, I tend to, you know, as I was mentioning on that, like for myself, just if I was preparing for this stuff, I would want to, um, or I do want to, to, to go through a couple of like very high intensity periods, right. Mm-hmm. Just to, just to get a real sense of the timing and the, the will that it takes to push through those things. Like I've, you know, I've had my share of street fights when I was younger. It's been a long time though, but I also never had a street fight since I was a small child where I wasn't, um, wasn't abundantly more competent than, right. than the situation. It's now that goes, yeah. I always say yeah. to kids, once you learn how to fight, you'll never want to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So it was like, I never, I never was in a, a struggle when it came to a street fight, right? It was always, okay, I can handle this. Um, at least since I was a child, right? I had a couple incidents when I was a kid where I tried to take on six guys at once and just ended up getting pummeled. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that was my experience. So I didn't, you know, I, I haven't um, maybe had that experience of having to push through. This is actually getting really hard now. 
So one pushback I may have on that, and I think you're right. I, I mean, we say it all the time, you know, you don't want to learn how, you don't want to get hit hard for the first time in a fight. Yeah. Okay, it has to happen before. You have to, you have to be pressure tested before. Um, however, there's other things going on in the fight too, the level of anxiety. And, and you know, the, the few fights that I was in, uh, I didn't feel any pain during these fights. There's so much going on. So again, it's it's... I agree with you. I'm just not sure I buy into the argument that it needs to be so frequent. Well, I don't uh, think it needs to be frequent at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, Steve Morris, who I've mentioned before, he you know he basically views doing the army milling drill as a kind of initiation. Yeah. Right? It's a stage you go through and then you're done with it. Like once once you've discovered what is to discover there, then you're not using it anymore. Right. And the the mini fights are. I was listening to you on a on a boxing podcast, and he was talking about that as well. About like let's let's go ahead and expose people to 100 percent speed. Let's do it in very small um, doses, right? Short, short doses, um, and that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I I I'm not a just from a representative standpoint. It seems like that's something that that the athlete needs an exposure to at a certain stage, but I. I think we've seen enough success now with athletes who who have largely not sparred um, hard in a long time that we can that we can speculate that you can um, that once you've had enough fights you don't need to have any hard sparring at all. I think that, yeah. that you can do all the mapping that you need with light sparring and you can have it be representative enough, and then you just have to have had the experience to map it too, so you recognize when that kick you caught would have been too fast in a in a real match uh i I didn't you mentioned on on the the journal club discussion about max holloway and i completely agree i use that example again that was another time i was nodding my head i use that example a lot my concern here with max i completely agree with max max has max has done the thousands presumably thousands and thousands of rounds of hard light medium sparring he's in you know fantastically attuned to what's going on in his skill sets there for every bang on the head he gets now, there's, there's, you know, if there's any return at all, but the diminishing returns he's going to get for, from sparring, he can stay in that playful zone. My concern is when new kids come into the sport thinking, well, I don't need to spar. Max Holloway doesn't spar. Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is an issue more generally in our sport, especially now with Instagram and Facebook. And it's the reason, to be quite frank, there's all sorts of this bullshit and these kids are spending time practicing these parlor tricks and, and, and this nonsense, chasing lasers across the wall and stuff. And it just drives me nuts. But again, this is what sells and it's, it's a, it's a tough thing to push back on. Yeah. <laughs> I was fun. So I, um, I started working with this MMA gym in, in the, in, in February last year. And when they kind of figured out who I was and Ray, uh, sorry, where are you based? I'm in Bellingham, Washington. Washington. Okay. Yeah. So, um, when they figured out what, well, some of the, the 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 coaches, one of the coaches is a is a fighter. Figured out who it was. It's like okay, it's like okay. So, so Connor has Ido. You know, I need Rafe, right? And I was like, I I'm not really happy with that analogy because I think that a lot of the the movement coaches who've come in and helped MMA fighters, they don't have a great record. It hasn't really been particularly helpful because it's lacking in representativeness. It's just right. parlor tricks. And, and what I see a lot that's happening with the kind of online promotion of movement is this, this problem of needing to have a way to look as impressive as specialists when you're a generalist. And so what 
so there's this weird um, incentive structure, I think, where you're never going to look like you're, I'll never spar like Conor McGregor or Max Holloway or Anthony Pettis, right? Because I'm never going to have the hours to put into the gym. Mm-hmm. Probably don't have the genetic talents to meet what they do anyways, right? So the thing that actually gives the benefit, which is the sparring, that's not how I promote myself, right? That's not the smart way to promote myself. The smart way to promote myself is to find something that they do that I can be better than. So I'm going to hit tennis balls against the wall. Right, right. Right. And I can be better than Vasily Lomachenko at hitting tennis balls against the wall if I devote enough time to it, because he doesn't have that much time to devote to stuff like that. He's got to actually fight. I'm glad you bring up Lomachenko and um, I'm going to butcher his name, but I wasn't surprised last week when um, Usk, Usk, was, I'm assuming, yeah. is that yeah. his name? Alexander Usk, Usk, yeah, I think it's Usk. He, um, he had over 300 and uh, between 300 and 350 amateur fights. Wow. Lomachenko and Usk didn't get to be absolute masters of their class by doing these silly parlor tricks. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of rounds of competitive boxing. Yep. Why should we be surprised at all that he schooled Joshua? Yeah, but but here's the interesting thing about that. How long is an amateur fight? Three rounds? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the, the mini fight idea that what you want is lots of exposures to, to a very representative thing yep. that's likely to accumulate less damage. Sure. So fatigue is a huge issue in behavior degrading to such a degree that you're much more likely to get injured, right? In, in a boxing match, most knockouts happen after three rounds, sure. right? So if you have athletes only sparring for three rounds, they're not going to get knocked out as much. Mm-hmm. So you can accumulate a huge amount of relevant experience without without taking as much damage. And Lomachenko and uh, Yusik, they they look pretty... Uh, they have they they've aged like wine, not like dogs, right? Right. <laughs> Compared to a lot of the guys who 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 went to the 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 pro ranks a lot earlier sure. and accumulated a lot of 10, 12 round wars. So it's just a to me it, it plays to this theme that that maybe we have an opportunity to um, to play with intensity that's more representative if we do it in much smaller um, doses, just enough to create the awareness without leaving the athlete exposed long enough to accumulate damage. Yep. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, while, while we're on the subject, um, I spoke with um, James Stafford about this. Where are you on, because I'm trying to do that with my students now, not so much stand-up, but especially the, the grappling side of things, is I'm really trying to practice a lot under these, under, uh, under these circumstances of fatigue. Yeah. And I know generally speaking, they say fatigue and learning are kind of antithetical to each other mm-hmm. however i do think there's a place to be um calibrating at that level under that fatigue recognizing that oh, recognizing that so yeah i mean so it, it depends on where you are in the skill acquisition journey right mm-hmm. like do i want you know one school that tends to drive me crazy is is krav maga because they sort of do all their skill acquisition after these super intense conditioning workouts and i just think that that's very suboptimal for early stage skill acquisition but pressure testing a skill against fatigue is absolutely necessary once the the general ability has been found right it's it's just another environmental constraint mm-hmm. right so you're going to you're going to adopt specific solutions that are going to be a little less you know, maybe elegant and you know maybe less adaptable long term if you have the athletes constantly fatigued when they're during doing skill acquisition but ultimately you're trying to take that skill and make it 
robust to as many perturbances as possible. And what's one of those huge perturbances? That's going to be fatigue. Now, like you don't you you want an athlete who who has access to those skills under as many circumstances as possible. So that's my that's that's how I would look at it. But I wouldn't want you know my worst injury from sparring came in a situation where we were told to do you know a three minute round. And I, I, I got a rear naked choke on the guy in a minute and a half. And then they just had us keep sparring. And then I don't know why, but we just kept sparring. So 15 minutes later, I had him in my third or fourth rear naked choke that hadn't sunk in. And he stood up and did a shoulder, stood up and did a shoulder throw on me and dislocated my shoulder. I was like, I was just an irresponsible coach who was not recognizing that, that the athletes were no longer safe. Right. Within our within what we do, like we're really playing with some interesting edges of like very high intensity practices. We did a, a game uh, during this most recent retreat where we had uh, it was sharks and minnows, right? But it was tackle sharks mm-hmm. and minnows, but we were doing it running up a slope. So that constrains how fast the athletes can move. And it was on sand. So that means that the surface is very soft and forgiving, mm-hmm. but our, our rule with those games, especially as we're introducing them to beginners is that like, we want to stop when it's as the most fun, and it can't be going down at all, right? When we're at 100%, we don't want to see 99%. We want to stop them at 100%. Okay. As soon as we start to see fatigue, we want to pull the athletes out of that, that particular scenario. Um, but this is early skill acquisition. This is not, you know, this is not like I'm trying to take an athlete who has a beautiful tackle already and we know hits the ground well and has all these things. And I'm trying to say, okay. I want to pressure test this knowing that, you know, uh, you might have to apply this in under fatigue. Like if you're a, a football player or, you know, maybe you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're doing a, someone's intercepted the ball on the other side and you got to run down the field 60 yards and tackle somebody. It's like, well, you better be able to do it when you're out of breath or if you're a SWAT guy or something like that. So, yeah, so I, I'm a big believer in, you know, as my friend Kelly Starrett would say, you don't, you don't, you don't have the skill until you can perform it under metabolic load. Um, Essentially, we, we have some simple, we say, if you can't do it live, you can't do it. But, uh, but yes, you're, you're taking it a step further. You can't do it under, you know, more specific. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, those are all layers of that. Not like, um, you know, if you're talking about sort of the, the, the aliveness concept, Another way of looking at that is um, Rory Miller has this idea of the, the the matrix of violence. One of his big points is that everyone who's trying to understand violence has insufficient information. You know, he talks about knife fights, right? Uh, he's like, I've, I've been in five knife fights. That's way more than most people have ever been in. That's Rory, not me. Um, but it's still way too small of a sample to, to generate any really robust conclusions out of. Right. Um, but he talks about this idea of, okay, well, what's the lighting like? How many people are in the area? What's the ground like? What are the, the climatic conditions? Is it raining? You know, and on and on and on. It's like, okay, okay, okay can you, can you upkick somebody in the gym? Okay, cool. Can you upkick somebody who is trying to invade your car and has a gun? Right. Totally, totally different. You know, maybe you still have your seatbelt on. Um, so that's kind of the matrix of violence. Uh, so, but one of those things that you really have to consider is, is, is fatigue. And obviously we've seen this over and over and again, in MMA guys who are amazing, you know, until they gas and then, and, uh, and yeah, the, the, the fatigue management side of it is huge. 
let's stay on the MMA side of things and just and just being there. Um, and I don't want to put you on the spot because I, yeah. I don't have a full grasp of it. Yeah, I actually spoke yeah. to Tyler today or reached out to Tyler of Emergence nice. and I revisited one of the Perception Action podcasts on perspective control. I've been thinking about this a lot recently and I don't want to talk too much on it because I don't quite have right. a full grasp of it. Are you are you familiar with that concept or what it's all uh, about? Can you remind me? So perspective control is, I, I would put it in the same uh, basket as anticipation, yeah, yeah. advanced cueing. Just, sure. uh, I think Rob calls it the current future. Yeah. And just attuning to what's what's about to happen. Yeah. I use uh, I use the great Habib as an example of this all the time. Habib doesn't do anything particularly sophisticated. He's just ahead of them. He yeah. just knows where they're going before. And I argue to the my last breath, you cannot drill that. You cannot drill that. You cannot drill that. No, absolutely. You need to just be in that position more than they are. And I think that's the direction we're starting to take our, uh, our, our training in and uh, get a couple of principles and just be there more. Yep. If you've been there more than me, Raf, the chances of you being successful in that situation and that outcome are, are I would imagine, much greater than, than me getting the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I generally agree. I think there's some, some subtleties to that that have to do with uh, the, the way that you're there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like be, being exposed in a way that's appropriate um, at a given level, right? That's where you're, you're sort of in the optimal challenge. Like, you know, unfortunately, if you've been there more and you've been rocked more, uh, you, may, you may actually be more vulnerable than somebody who has been there less. Uh, but yeah, in general, I, I agree with that. So again, that goes back to the, the whole conversation is, is wrapped around this idea of how do we give people... Um, a uh, an exposure that allows them to attune to the environmental variables that we're looking for um, without taking damage that's going to actually prevent them from having the action capabilities to deal with the situation, right? If, if, if we expose you a bunch and you get all the informational variables, but then we injure your brain so that your speed of processing is damaged or your ability to buffer a headshot is substantially lower, um, then we could easily be taking three steps back for every one step forward. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I basically took nine years off of formal martial arts training and just sparred with friends and, and students of my own. And, uh, and I walked into a gym and trained with guys who had trained with me nine years ago who had gone to have, um, you know, pro careers and I was better relative to them than I had been nine years before. Um, and what do you attribute that to? Do you attribute that to uh, the damage they've taken or just that you were kind of tuning and doing your own thing? I, th- I attribute it to the fact that sparring is definitely the the, the thing that you will get the most benefit from. Oh. Like I oh, just I retained, I retained the most important piece of the training. And obviously I had attained a skill that was high enough that I could continue to scaffold up off of it. And I've also continued to, 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 um, to watch and consume and think about martial arts a ton. So I think conceptually, I have a very high uh, understanding and I have enough um, embodied experience to be able to port that over and adapt it relatively quickly. Um, and then also like, I just became an athletic beast through parkour and yeah. I'm kind of I'm I'm um, sorry to interrupt here. Yeah. I just wanted to get this out because uh, I'm in awe of that that parkour sport. Um, yeah. I, I'd be interested to know how you think of the general skill set and coordination um, skills of parkour athletes, elite parkour athletes versus elite gymnasts. Um, 
Yeah, the, I actually think that parkour has surpassed gymnastics as a, I would think so, and just because yeah. of the variability, presumably, yes. presumably, right? Yeah, I don't know if you saw my presentation for uh, at the 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 movement skill conference, but that was basically the theme was okay. that I didn't see it. Was that it, that the parkour constraint led approaches in team sport and MMA versus traditional sport all kind of create one coherent argument for the for why a sort of ecological dynamics constraint led type of training is always going to outperform you know i call it the universal athletic blueprint basically you have to play the game and i think that to, for the the optimal development of any athlete at least from a childhood they should be playing parkour mixed martial arts team sports and dance um, those are the things that attune you to the kind of broadest variety of environments and allow you highly donatable skills from one sport to another. Did you say bands? Dance. Oh, dance. I thought you said bands. Okay. Dance. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, those are, those are sort of the four pillars to me. You have to be able to move your body through space well and, and be good at locomoting through the environment. You got to be able to deal with another person, both cooperatively and competitively and you mm -hmm. got to be able to work well in groups and see situations develop and that's kind of that's it so like my son you know um uh my daughters i'm my oldest daughter she's not as sporty you know so i kind of keep her in sport but she's not she's not interested in being a project of of creating this uh <laughs> this product nor, nor are my kids yeah yeah but my son is really you know he loves this stuff so he does parkour with me um, and he, he's taken parkour classes locally and we'll do that again. Um, and he's, uh, done lots of martial arts and he's playing football right now and he played rugby in the spring and he's doing hip hop dance and he's very next year, he'll be allowed to move into the B-boy class. And that's what he's really, really anticipating. And so he's getting attunement on all those levels and uh, it'll be interesting to see, see how that works. But that's the theory for me. Um, so I, I, I came from gymnastics and um, I've always been able to kind of think back and say, okay, well, where are we skill development wise versus gymnastics? And for the longest time, I was like, well, the gymnasts are still way ahead of us. But about 2013, it was like, well, that's not so clear anymore. And then I was like, well, how did we get so good so fast? Because that was literally like, I mean, in 2013, most athletes had only been doing this for less than a decade. And they didn't have gyms devoted to them. They didn't have coaches. They didn't have, there's no, there's virtually no financial incentive in parkour, but um, there are athletes in parkour who are doing, you know, uh, triple flips. They're doing double twisting uh, flips. They're doing triple twists, like all the, like, you know, there are E level skills and D level skills in gymnastics. And I don't know anyone in parkour who's done an E level skill necessarily, but there's lots of people now who are doing D level skills, but they're doing them in much more difficult contexts. Yeah. And if you, if you look at some of the kind of parkour specific expressions, like doing a gainer backflip and landing on a rail, um, I'm not so sure there's many gymnasts who would be willing to do that. No, I'm sure there's not. And can he, I'm not privy to it because I guess everyone thinks our sport's not. So yeah. Have you got any kind of, insight? well, I'm sure you do. What's the kind of injury rate or most common not, like in parkour? It's yeah, not? no. Um, presumably just cause it's been scaled and over time. Yeah. Uh, we, I, I'm, I've become a huge believer that athlete autonomy is one of the most important safety parameters that you can provide that when athletes have a high degree of pressure from coaches to perform, they're far more likely to get injured. 
even when you have lots of safety stuff. So parkour is extremely self-selected and athletes wait for an inter- a very strong internal sense of yes before they try these things. So even though they're doing things that look really crazy, um, there's, a, there's a, a strong sort of internal structure of safety that has been built that allows them to do this. It's, it's crazy to watch. It's hard to imagine. Um, I was just watching a video where uh, Dom Tommaso, Di Tommaso is probably... He's the he's the most advanced parkour athlete in the world, specifically for doing very large movements, especially front flips. But he's done things like front flip down uh, 27 feet, right? He's taken a 27 foot drop as part of a front flip. So in this particular one, he front flips over a rail and then covers a, a 20 foot gap, dropping say six feet um, and lands on a, a concrete ledge that's projected out of a building that's only about four feet wide and rolls out and then drops down another 15 feet. Um, that was one of the craziest things I've seen. But it's really interesting to watch. When you watch it, don't just see the feet, see how he prepares himself mentally, you know, and then think about the idea that everything that he's done like that, he's chosen to do. Nobody has ever pressured him to do it. Nobody has told him you're ready um, and you got to do this. And, you know, you have to do this for this competition that's coming up or you have to get this, this, you know. So I think that that's a a huge thing. Um, Outdoor parkour practice, there's been some studies on it. There's only, I think there's one pretty good high quality study on it that found that it has uh, an average about five um, injuries per per thousand hours of practice. And um, most of those are abrasions and you know, nicks and like a sprained finger or a mildly sprained ankle, very few really catastrophic injuries. And, you know, if you compare that to, it's, it's pretty comparable to say indoor rock climbing or gymnastics, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit more. It's lower than most team sports. Um, and Presumably a lot lower than jujitsu and MMA too. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You're just, you're just moving your body, but I actually think that the, you know, like, with these ideas around representativeness, like someone like Rob Gray, I think would be pretty skeptical that parkour would donate much to jujitsu. But I actually think that it does because it's more of an evolutionary perspective. Your body, you you just have this, um, it's an expression of your body's ability to move itself through space. And that's actually fundamental to every sport, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm moving with you on the mat, I'm locomoting myself. And my ability to get from one space to another faster and to see movement opportunities um, is actually closely related. You know, can I, can I invert comfortably? Can I rotate comfortably? Can I um, move on my hands, my knees, my back? Do I have the the understanding of the coordination to change those positions quickly? I was in a jujitsu class and we were doing, um, I'm trying to remember, it was like a, it was a sort of weird roll into Ashigurami to trip, to take a, to take a straight ankle lock. And what I realized was that it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was essentially a rolling mechanic in two different dimensions. So first you had to roll backwards up onto your shoulders, and then you had to rotate on your shoulders. So you're twisting sagittally and then on the frontal plane. And this, this, like, I felt how to do this in my body much quicker than the other students. And not only did I feel it, I could then tell you exactly what was happening and could then break it down and have athletes develop awareness of the sagittal versus the, uh, the front, uh, not frontal transverse plane action, um, that was needed for this particular movement. And I, I just had the sense that, that most of the athletes 
most of the students there just didn't have the body sense for locomotion that would allow them to easily access this type of skill. And I'm not sure that, um, that when there's as much kind of overwhelming information from the other agent that you're working with, it's actually easy to pick up and develop that level of internal body skill. That's interesting. And it's, it's actually adding a little bit of weight to some of my, um, <laughs> I would say, online opponents when I, when I shit all over uh, coming up to jiu-jitsu class and butt scooting and shrimping and bear crawling and rolling down the floor. Um, that kind of that tends to trigger me a bit, but yeah. I guess what you're saying, you, you maybe even lend a little bit of weight to that and say there maybe is some usefulness in it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of the way those things are done, but I think some kind of an inherent locomotive-oriented practice is is valuable. But I think that um, you you would, I mean, most of that stuff is just done very thoughtlessly. Well, I think it's it, done with high it's, attention. Yeah, for me, it's a bit of a sign of laziness. And, yeah. um, you know, and go back to the, the, this whole um, ecological approach. But uh, again, let's let's just reiterate the, the traditional way works. Absolutely works. Uh, I was just writing, I'm doing these little podcast quickies at the moment, and I was uh, just putting more together on time last night. I think it's more um, the opportunity costs of some of the yes. other kind of training. And for me, uh, you know, I was talking about the cliche of 1% better, mm-hmm. which is just alluding to these small incremental gains over time will be a yeah. tremendous results. Um, 1% of an hour is 36 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what the ecological approach does is it just, it constrains you somewhat to stay in reality. Mm-hmm. And and just by that, it's it, this opportunity cost of, of, of say, the, the static drilling or the isolated practice or whatnot, it's, it's removed right away. So just by nature of having even a, a, a very, very superficial uh, understanding of the ecological approach, which is, again, you know, playing the kind of game in there, I think you remove, uh, you add so much more to your, your practice just, just by adhering to some of the, the most yeah. fundamental principles. Yeah, absolutely. So let's... Let's consider the idea for a second. I, mean, I want to run with this idea that that maybe some kind of locomotion uh, or some that that a a jujitsu coach might want to understand the locomotion that is necessary in their sport, have a good model of it, and then might want to um, might want to look at their their the athletes they're coaching and and be intentional about if they're developing action capabilities that then really do effectively donate to their sport. What I see when I see the traditional jujitsu ground movement warm-up is that there's no empirical way of telling if the athlete is doing it better or if that skill is showing up in their rolling. And there's no intention around that. So you could take something. Well, so the, the first question, like I, I, I was listening to Ryan Hall, um, and Ryan Hall was saying he doesn't think that shrimping should be done. He doesn't think it's actually a relevant movement category yeah. in jujitsu. Um, so, you, so the first thing you want to do is actually like ask: Are these movements showing up and relevant in the context in which we're t- trying to train for them? But then the second thing you do is say, well, um, are, are, be- are our athletes is is what we're doing actually helping our athletes get better <laughs> in a way that's relevant to their performance there? I think so many people mindlessly do those drills because they're tradition. Sure. They're not actually, they're not actually applying any sort of thought to whether they're showing up then. Right. And it, 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 it's not even just like, um, it's not even just these sort of locomotive, these isolated locomotive drills that don't have much the, the, that, um, that are very isolated from the practice. I, I'm not a big fan of having athletes just say, throw up uh, 20 arm bars and 
20 triangles in a totally dead manner at the beginning of every class. It's mindless. But what about what about muscle memory? Riff? <laughs> not it's not it's not a thing it doesn't work like that it's not i was just having this discussion right it's like you you have to automate these skills it's like well there there is no automation because because you're not training for a context in which someone is laying like a fish and letting you put an armbar on them right you're you're training to attune the the athlete to see the opportunity in which the armbar is available right? And how to work through the different types of resistance that they're going to face to get the arm bar. Mm. So for, for someone who's first being introduced to an arm bar, that kind of practice is, is okay. But there's a point, there's a very rapid point at which it, it's not really interesting. It doesn't really, that's a, that's 1% of your time or a lot more than 1% of your time that could be much more effectively spent. And I'm not upset with the traditional warm-up upset. It's not really the right word because I think it's probably useless. And it may not be useless. I could probably be convinced that there is some kind of utility in it. Mm-hmm. My concern or my problem with it is the opportunity cost. Yeah, yeah. There's so many better ways to use that time. Yeah, especially, I mean, you know, I think it's uh, uh, one of my friends, um, Josef Rusik from Fighting Monkey, said, you know, it's it's kind of a... it's it's a tragedy anytime that you have the opportunity to train with another athlete and you're not using it, right? And you're not using it because it's the most complex thing, right? What did Rob say the other day? The best piece of training equipment ever designed was another human. Right? Exactly. It's the most complex thing. So, so, you know, I, I was in this, this sparring class or I was in this, this class and we were, we were just doing jabs. Right. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make this more representative, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be moving forwards, backwards, strafing sideways, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to jam you up and force you to respond. I'm going to make you use your footwork in order to find the distance where you're going to snap that jab and it's going to feel good. It's like that makes it more representative. And you can do that with all these things, right? Like why, you know, I, I was, I watched a video of somebody recently. I, I just saw a video of somebody just doing, you know, shuffling footwork down and back. I was like, God, oh, that's boring. <laughs> like, it's just really like it, maybe one time. I'm not sure that you need it one time, but like first let them play a game like torso tag or shoulder tag, whatever. And then like, if you see something, you might say, okay, well, like understand this is basically what's happening in that footwork and like, just get a sense for it. Like, just let's be aware of it. And then we go back and we do something else. And, and then we, then we ask like, is this showing up? Right. Is this working? But why not have the athletes in front of each other? Right. You know, um, essentially you're saying, is it, you look at that, is it, is it worth doing? Uh, I'll run a foundations class tonight. This is week five of, of six. So we're, we're encouraging combinations. So again, it'll be, you know, just play with the different, there'll be six relatively, the six weapons of the work. It'll be the shoulder tag, the belly button with uh, either the cross or the jab, and then inside low kick or outside low kick. And I'll say, okay, this, now try and see how, if you can throw, just throw two of these strikes at your partner. And we always do this read, read, react, return thing. So I always want some kind of consequence or some kind of reaction retaliation from the other side. Yeah. It's not wholly authentic because you're, you're, you're one side's initiating and they know who's going to initiate. But anyway, this is where we get to. But uh, like the other day I said, okay, it's combination week. Let's do this. Uh, we're going to do, I split the class up and I call it these little technical moments because I've said them, you know, you came here, I learned something, presumably I, I'm going to show you something. Yeah. And uh so we made these three, uh, three times we stopped the class, we did three, um, three strike combos, and then we put them all together at the end. And I said, so now we have a ridiculous nine strike combo that will never, ever be used in the 
the the the future of fighting. But and um, we make a we make kind of a laugh of it. But but it was a time for us maybe just to for to give the students a little bit of a sense that they're doing something a bit more technical on the pads yeah. or whatever. But I try that's becoming an increasingly you know shrinking little area of my class. Yeah, I throw it in there just again. I, I shouldn't probably need to because I think these students presumably they're enjoying it enough to keep coming back. But I'm really not showing too much technical stuff now at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. I th my sense is there is a time for it, right? There's a, there's a, you know, like a, uh, Matt's method is what introduce, uh, isolate, integrate, right? Mm -hmm. So. So the idea is you, you kind of play in a way that, that exposes it, then you look at it, and then you integrate it back. And that's what we found has work, worked too. There's a point at which you'll see that the skill is not kind of fully forming. Yeah. And, and, you can, and the athlete now has enough context to understand what you're trying to get out of that skill. And you can give them a little tip and give them a little bit more of a, of a mental marker for that thing. And that's the technical portion. And then right away you want to you want to think okay how how do I get this back into the the scenario? That's that's the way that I. Think. I I'm going to borrow that riff because I, I like that. I, I use the word mental model sometimes, and I know that's yeah. that's not a good word to throw around the ecological guys. But that mental marker, I yeah. still can't shake that. That someone needs to have an idea. I use the I use the example of a Peruvian necktie. Yeah. If you tell someone to go and find some obscure choke like that, it's not. Yes, presumably it'll appear eventually. But I feel we still even use a little bit of, even after me talking like this, we still use a little bit of block drilling just to get a general idea down of what you're looking for. Even block drilling is not, it's not bad, right? Like Rob Gray did a, a beautiful podcast about when bra, block drilling is appropriate, right? There, there's research that shows that there are, uh, there are um, specific contexts in which block drilling uh, outperforms uh, random practice. We know random practice generally outperforms but it has to do with the cognitive load that the student is experiencing. Mm -hmm. So like just for myself, I find that um, some skills, I think there are skills that are inherently more self-organizing and there are skills that are inherently more reliant on cognition. So can, can I, can, can we put a pin in that and I'll come back to that or, or maybe before I forget, um, then hits the head. Uh, I, I like what you're saying for me, we teach jujitsu in these, uh, you know, submissions are little transient moments in a jujitsu yeah. fight. But we focus so much time on that. Where yeah. really the meat and potatoes is just the rolling and the scramblings and the, the and I think that's I think that's exactly what you you've said again better than yeah. I can uh, articulate it. That that's where that self organization is really rich. Yeah, where you're po where you're naturally posting, finding balance, finding pace. Exactly. I think when and then you said that maybe need a bit more of a mental marker is these little transient moments, is these yeah. little technical yeah. setups and yeah. submissions. I think that you're gonna find. Uh, it's going to be, if you want a bow and arrow choke to be acquired by a student, trying to, to, to navigate them there solely in a sort of game focused way is going to be hard. Yeah. Um, it, it's, there's too many details, right? It, it's, it's too unintuitive a set of sort of physical circumstances. Sure. But if you're, but if you're trying to technically teach like every element of guard passing, it's going to, it's going to, it's just going to be way too much. Right. And not like um, a uh, a step vault in parkour. It needs very little, very little um, kind of cognitiveizing. But a corkscrew backflip um, kind of requires a lot of understanding of the pieces to mm -hmm. organize it. And you you and it needs more of a blocked practice type of approach. Sure. So there there's a, there is a, a spectrum there, and 
yeah, I, I'm struggling to kind of get precisely how how we describe that and with what the original research was. But it is important to know that, that there are there are situations where block practice is appropriate. Um, it's just understanding that you know the, the general thing. I think the general thing is obviously representativeness, and then that. I guess the rule that we use, maybe this is a useful one, is always train at the highest level of complexity that allows you to acquire the adaptation you're looking for. Right? I think that 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 I really think that's a great way to think about these things. I think it's great. I think it can be um, so. Two things that the challenge point is enormously difficult to get right in in uh, a class that's maybe twenty. 25, 30 people. It's just yeah. it's now impossible. So what I like about the ecological thing is it does it does broaden that uh, opportunity for people to kind of play within their own challenge point yes. space. Um, so I do like that. Uh, and again, I think it's it, adhering to these principles. Uh, I think perhaps ecological system for me is much more uh, effective just because it's 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 addressing some of these things. It's addressing the opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. It's addressing the decoupling of perception action. Yep. It's addressing the challenge point theory. So just these things alone makes that whole practice much richer. Um, yeah. And the emphasis on athlete autonomy is huge, right? When we talk about the challenge right. point hypothesis, if you set a challenge and the challenge that you set is uniform across uh, 20 athletes, then the likelihood that you've, that you've reached the optimal challenge point for every single athlete in class is going to be very low. Mm-hmm. If you set a challenge, give help the athletes be aware of the principles that are trying to be understood within that challenge, and then give them some range to play within, to self-select the the appropriate difficulty for them. Then you're much more likely to have uh, you know ten pairs of students working at a level that is optimally appropriate or closer to optimally appropriate for each individual. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, that's that's what I think you know is so empowering as a coach is, is knowing, you know, like you're not just feeding your athletes information about the, what that they're producing. You're actually teaching them how to make that, that thing, that skill that we're trying to acquire come into being and giving them a tool set that allows them to become better and better at that. I think it probably takes a little bit more time to set up the culture, but your, your results are going to start. Um, they're going to exponentially um, or non-linearly improving. Yeah, I think, and I'm, I, again, I'm starting to see that. And most of my work done in design and practice or thinking about practice is done offline, is done off the mat. So I'm not yeah. wasting anyone's time talking about it. Um, yeah. We are enormous advocates of YouTube, which could be frowned upon, or you think, oh, you're just some fucking yeah. YouTube coach, you know? I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm embracing it. Uh, man, I, I, I've learned so much from YouTube coaches, right? Like Lawrence <laughs> Kenshin, you know, um, um, modern martial artists, guys like who are bra- bringing back Willie Pep. Like you go into the average boxing gym and nobody knows who Willie Pep is, right? right? And they're not going to teach you all, all the, those refinements of footwork or BJJ scout breaking down, uh, you know, all of, of Dominic Cruz's footwork. Like, right. I think it's amazing how so oh, and, Do- and Dominic Cruz, he's hawking this uh, solo footwork drill yeah. package now that I'm sure he's making a fortune of. I'm like, no, that's not how you became one of the best in the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's like Eugene Sandow, right? Yeah. Uh, I think what he sold was completely not what he was doing. But um, anyways. I, th- I think also uh, Stuart Armstrong does it. Um, you're familiar with Stuart Stu Armstrong from mm-hmm. the... 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Podcast. He, he, he does a fantastic job of just, you know, bringing it to the layman and whatnot. And he talks about he's not anti-technique, he's just pro-skill. And he talks a lot about that. And that's something we try and push. I am actually all for grabbing your buddy at the end of class, going hitting, hitting some pads, talking through, working the mechanics, asking questions. I just don't want it in a group setting where we're all gathered here in our valuable hour or yeah. two hours or whatever it is. Let's get the most out of this. So exactly. I think we can come across as uh, foo-fooing or, or being dismissive of technique. And I don't think either of us would be suggesting that. Yeah. I just think in the in the context of skill acquisition, when we have a group of young athletes together, we we get the most out of that as we can. Absolutely. Sorry, one second. So you should be YouTube, you should be YouTube in that as well, Rafe. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I think um we're gonna have to to wrap up here pretty quick. Sure. But um, you were you were just about to finish the thought, if you remember what you were trying to say. What was it trying to say there? I was we're talking about Stu McMillan, actually. Oh, uh, Stu Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just the way uh, talking about the, not being anti-technique, being pro-skill. Yeah, and yeah. I think we can come over a little bit overzealous. Some I, I certainly can come over a little bit overzealous sometime that it's all about skill development, skill acquisition, and technique will emerge. It doesn't really matter, but I'm actually an advocate for doing it. Just an advocate for doing it on the side. The same way I think strength and conditioning should be a supplement, not a substitute. And uh, I think if I stick to that, I'll, I'll serve my that and being mindful of the, the knocks of the head. I, I, I believe <laughs> oh, I'll serve my students well. Yeah, I hate when I go into a martial arts class and it's, uh, it's half conditioning. It's like oh. I I I'm here to learn skills and spend time in this environment. I take care of my own strength and conditioning. I don't need to waste my energy doing sloppy. You know, people are really ingrained. I made some, you know, you can have these long form discussions and get no engagement. And then you make some stupid meme online. I, I posted in a, there's like one of these BJJ groups, a bunch of jujitsu dorks online. And I said something about, uh, shimping might be the greatest waste of time and then everyone gets in their camps and oh you're saying you're against warm-ups and you must be a fat white belt and everything it all comes out you know uh, so absolutely not against it but just while we're here let's 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 use each other yeah use use each other you know i think that um you're familiar uh, familiar with the pareto principle no i'm not okay so pr- the pareto principle it's also called the 80 20 rule right so I'm generally yeah, 20, 20% of the practices you use produce 80% of the value. So for me, as somebody who's doing parkour and martial arts and, you know, lots of other movement stuff, dance, whatever it is at any given time, like I need to be really efficient when I go into any specialist practice. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask myself, what, what, what's going to give me 80% of the benefit of practicing like a martial artist, um, MMA fighter, um, with I just need to spend 20% of the time. And what I've discovered is spar. Right. And then I I, I do like hitting the heavy bag, right? Because I think that you're training yourself to pull punches when you spar. I agree. And and that's what we identified last time as being being a potential issue with the way we train. Yeah. So get somebody learning to access that aggression. Like um, another one that's uh, is like, if you can get like a full body kick shield, and just have somebody going after that, like 100% aggression. You got to get people into that 100% aggression state. Um, 
So anyways, um, I'm sure we'll, we'll have a lot, a lot more to talk about, but, um, yeah, I love that. I know it was just a general discussion today, Raf, but again, um, it's always nice to meet an ally and someone yeah. that's uh, so firmly aligned and it may be an echo chamber, but it's an echo yeah. chamber. I enjoy. Oh yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're working ourselves through these ideas and hopefully, um, both of us have something to, to go back and, and work on. And if you ever get a chance to come out and uh, visit this way, I'd love to, love to, to, to get some, some mat time in together or some in my context. Grass time. My, 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 my door is always open and uh, perhaps you'll um, perhaps you'll graciously come on my podcast next time we can yeah sounds good cool. the primal MMA coaching podcast primal shameless MMA plug coaching Riff. shameless yes. plug plug away plug away <laughs> people want us to find you is it primal MMA is your primal MK primal MKE that's the airport code for Milwaukee um, I put a lot of my blogs and brain farts and science stuff up uh, up there on our website and yeah anyone ever in town and wants to uh, isn't interested in coming through and interested in seeing what we're doing just drop in our mats are always open and welcome for everyone awesome thank you including yourself thank you riff hey you reached the end of another evolve move play podcast if you enjoyed what you heard if you want to be involved in the conversation please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month question and answers with me once a month and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.